Welcome back to our Questions People Ask podcast. Today, we're going to bring part two of a discussion that began with our last episode entitled, Why Can We Trust the Bible? And I'm joined here again with Executive Pastor Alan Tolliver, almost said Talia Farrow, because <laughs> if I see your name in writing, that's going to be your last name every time. Uh, hey, let's explain that for a minute. How do you get Tolliver out of Talia Farrow? We don't have time for that, man. All right, we don't have time for that, but it will happen in an upcoming podcast. All right, and I have John Hume, a discipleship pastor, who has a regularly pronounceable last name. All right, so in our last episode, we talked about what the Bible is, how we got it in the form we have today, uh, why new books aren't added to it, and how it is grounded in a provable and historical context. Uh, basically, we talked about how we can trust the scriptures uh, that we have today because they're the same scriptures that we were intended to have by God. Uh, we talked a little bit about that in the last episode. In this episode, we kind of want to dive into the proofs for the content of the Bible. Uh, again, this is a huge topic, and we're barely going to be able to scratch the surface of it because there's a whole lot of stuff there, uh, which just means that we have opportunities to come back and go deeper on specific topics as the uh, as time goes by. For instance, we got one coming up that we already have in mind. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Well, we'll talk about that in detail. Uh, what proofs do we have for the resurrection? That's one of my favorite topics. We'll talk about that in more detail. Uh, what about prophecy and fulfillment. I'm going to try to hit on some of those things today uh, because I think there's probably almost no greater proof from the Bible that the Bible can be trusted in the fact that it said these things are going to happen and then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, over hundreds of years, these things happened. Every one of them. Yeah. So, well, there's still some out there pending. And the cool thing about prophecy is, uh, and I've recently just come to understand this, a lot of times a prophecy had a now and not yet aspect to it. So there would be an immediate fulfillment, but then there would also be a longer term fulfillment. For instance, when Isaiah talks about how this shall be a sign that the virgin will conceive, and you would this would be one of the, uh, uh, the signs of a certain thing that was gonna happen. Well, if you look at that in context, it leads you to believe, wait a minute, this was a proof for something that was going to happen almost immediately. Yes. Uh, but it also has a, so it had a now aspect to it, which means that Mary wasn't the first virgin to have a child. I mean, that's what that prophecy would suggest. Uh, and then, but it had that long-term aspect to it that we are all familiar with in the story of the birth of Jesus. So that'll also be uh, something that we will dive into in a little bit more detail. Um, Alan, before we get to what we want to talk about today, we, you, we were talking a few minutes ago about some stuff. We were talking yesterday or in our, in our last podcast about the canon and what that means and how the Bible was put together. And you brought up the point that it didn't just immediately happen, that it happened over a long period. Of time. And we touched on that a little bit yesterday uh, in our conversation, but... You had some more stuff to kind of, that we were just talking about. Let's bring let's dive back into that for a minute. All right, um, I'll have to work not to go too deep, but um, before I say anything else, let me recommend that if you're interested in how we got the Bible we got, one of the best things you can read is a book by Donald Brake, B-R-A-K-E, Brake, Donald Brake, called "Visual History of the English Bible." Highly recommended. It. It's um, it's it's academic, but it's not inaccessible. So it's an easy read. You can, it, there's a lot of great pictures and diagrams and, and it just lays out 
sort of how we got the English Bible that we have today and some of the the traditions of translation and and understanding what, the, what sort of the history of the text was. So for the uh, for those who are listening and watching, let me let me encourage you to do that. I even have a copy if you want to borrow it, but uh, it's definitely worth worth a read. Um, if we could look back for a second, way back actually, to um, uh, a, the Israelite people during the Second Temple period. So we're talking about that period where the temple has been rebuilt. Sometimes they called it uh, Herod the Great's Temple, but it was during that period that all of the texts of the Israelite people began to be collected. You know, they'd been through uh, the exile to Babylon, and so they knew what it was to lose everything, and there was a renewed interest in collecting and preserving materials. Um, You mentioned the other day that you visited Qumran, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. That community, uh, they were called Essenes, they were really interested in collecting, preserving, and protecting all of the different texts that they had going way back into antiquity. And we were able to see, see the results of some of those preservation efforts uh, even today. But one of the things, uh, one of the interesting chapters in that process was back about um, uh, 250 BC. There was a guy named King Ptolemy II of Egypt, and he'd heard that the Jews up in Israel had some wisdom that they had collected a book, if you will, or a collection of writings that revealed the divine, and he was really interested in it, but nobody in Egypt spoke Hebrew. And so he sent for 70-some rabbis to come and translate all of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that it would be accessible to the Greek-speaking world. And that document became later known as the Septuagint, which is a, a play on the word 70. And it was really the first time that the Hebrew Scriptures had been translated into a language that was accessible to others. And as a practical matter, the Septuagint was the Scriptures used by the early church. So that document survived for about 350 years as as a collection um, called the Septuagint, and it actually had some slight differences to the Bible we know today. There was one extra psalm, Psalm 151 was in the Septuagint. Uh, There was a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which was more wisdom writings. Um, uh, The the Wisdom of uh, Ben Sirach, Esther uh, had an extra uh, chapter in it, and uh, there was uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Those were uh, two books, and we later, we know some of these things now today as the Apocrypha, but that's, that's where that collection came from. And I don't know how much deeper we want to go on that topic, but it's so why, why aren't they around? Like, where are they now? Like, why don't we read those books? I guess you can read them now. Um, there was a whole process of closing the canon in the late three and four hundreds. Now, tell us again what the canon is. The canon is the collection, the commonly agreed upon collection of books that we know as scripture. And then there were some other writings that were in circulation that either we couldn't attest to the authenticity of them, or they didn't align with the rest of Scripture, um, or they, the, uh, the authorship was highly suspect. And so for a variety of reasons, and I think very much led by the Holy Spirit, those books were set aside. Um, in some cases, the, the author or editor or translator of the Bible wasn't sure, and so they were set apart for further thought. Um, the, guy that, the guy that wrote the first Latin Bible 
the Latin Jerome, Vulgate, Jerome yeah. the First. He was commissioned by Pope Damasus the First. Um, he really didn't like some of the books I just listed. He just he felt like they didn't line up, and he was ready to drop them. And Pope Damasus convinced him not to delete, but to set apart and denote as uncertain, an unwillingness to destroy um, until we had more clarity on them. But over the course of time, different communities um, all agreed um, uh, that these were going to be the texts that we would use for our, for our Bible. That's how we ended up with them. I mean, it's an amazing story about, and we talked about it yesterday, about how Scripture has been preserved through the years uh, and the the process by which we received it today. You, you can see God's guiding hand because you were talking earlier about how but like the, the Roman Empire collapsed by the time we yeah. got uh, to where we are today. But somehow still this whole transmission of God's Word uh, was transmitted. I mean, I have to say the way God intended for it to. I have no reason to, to say otherwise. Um, and, and I would argue, just, just as we, before we move on, I would, I would also argue that even though there's some different textual trans, traditions and even some, some slightly different canons, for example, the Ethiopian Christian community and the Coptic Christian community and the Persian Christian community all have slightly different texts from us. Um, New Testament, same, but how they treated some of these uh, books from the Old Testament that the authenticity was somewhat in question, um, those, each of those disparate communities handled it differently. You know, you had one Roman Empire, but when it collapsed, you know, invasion by the barbarians, it splintered and separated a number of different regions and communities who hadn't finished the process of locking the canon. And so they have slightly different translations. But every single one of them calls on the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they recognize the structure of a church, they complete baptism, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, fair to say, Alan, uh, you're much more versed at this than I am, but those uh, other books, uh, historical books, maybe, um, I don't know what else they would call them, we don't see them as, we don't put the same weight on those books in Scripture Correct. as other groups would. Fair to say that they're important, they're, um, we can learn things from them, mm -hmm. but we don't give them the same weight as the 66 books we would have in the Bible. 100% correct. 100% correct. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of thoughts about what angels are and where angels come from and what angels do. And would you believe that very little uh, references to angels in some of our Scripture passages, right? Right. You ever wonder where some of our ideas about angels come from? Some of those ideas come from those books that we no longer honor. It's interesting. It is interesting. Uh, all right, I want to change gears uh, for a minute. I want to talk a little bit about using the Bible to prove the Bible. And, and, and there's mm -hmm. some right ways to do that, and there's some wrong ways to do that. And, of course, I want to hit on the number one wrong way to do that. And that's basically— and. I think we've all been guilty of it at some point, saying, I believe the Bible— because it's the Bible. Uh, I believe this in the Bible because it's in the Bible. And that's kind of an argument from, I mean, I can make the same kind of argument. I can say that I believe unicorns live on one of the moons of Saturn. Well, why do you believe that? Oh, because I wrote it in a paper once. 
Uh, it's like, so clearly it must be true. And so skeptics will come at you and say, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And I would say from that standpoint, I believe the Bible because it's the Bible. Well, I would agree with that. Uh, that, that that's, that's a poor argument. But that's not to say you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible because you can look at certain things in the Bible and go, well, is it true or not true? We talked a little bit about that in the last episode about how uh, er, the people, early skeptics in like the 1700s started talking about the Jesus mythology uh, because the, the, this Jesus guy, if, if he existed at all, he wasn't all that, that we, we claim he was. Uh, we find out that people were saying, oh, there's no King David. There's no person named Pilate. And all of a sudden they find stuff. Then it's like, oh, there's a David and there's a Pilate. Right. And so you can actually take stuff from the Bible and compare that against historical and archaeological findings right. and say, I mean, there they are. I mean, there, there's a, there, there's a, a, a evidence that these people did exist. So if nothing else, that might not prove what it says, but it does at least offer something that says they existed. And so then we start looking at, well, then how do we know if we can trust the Bible? And I think the number one way that you can look to see that the Bible is at least trustworthy in what it's saying is in the prophecies, especially fulfilled messianic uh, prophecies. And, it, yep. and you know, I bet I could ask you right now, throw out some. Go ahead. Oh, let's do that. Give me some messianic prophecies. You've already, you've already mentioned one, right? A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel. Straight from Isaiah. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was a prophecy. Uh, there's a prophecy about how Jesus would be crucified, uh, how, which wasn't really even a thing at the time. Unrecognizable. Uh, right. Unrecognizable. Uh, they would talk about how he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh, things like that. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of them. Yeah, there's six, uh, there's six in uh, Matthew, in the first couple of chapters of Matthew alone, all the different uh, prophecies that, that came from Old Testament fulfilled in, in the book of Matthew. In fact, Matthew, being, being a Jew, Matthew was very concerned with proving the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament coming true in the person of Jesus Christ. Right. He had this thing he kept saying over and over again, this was done to fulfill As it what, was foretold. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those things. And I was about to make that exact same point you made. He he was right. It looks like he was writing to a Jewish audience to say, look, we've been waiting for this Messiah and this is him. This is he. Right. This is one of those grammatical constructs. I'm not 100% sure what the right word is. Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, I really love how John gets into it. He doesn't necessarily come at it from a, 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 a what's the word I'm looking for? Prophecy Perfect. fulfillment. Perfect. Yeah. Words are hard. Uh, prophecy fulfillment standpoint. He just comes flat out and says, oh, by the way, Jesus, God, God, Jesus. Mm -hmm. In the beginning was yep. the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. Word became flesh. Uh, and I love that. And I actually want to uh, hit on that at some point in fuller detail, too. But we look at some prophecies about Jesus. And where are my notes? I got this book. I stumbled across it years ago. Let me give you some background. I was at a youth evangelism conference when I was in high school. 
and I think Josh McDowell might have been one of the speakers. Okay. Now, you probably know his story a little bit. Uh, he was a lawyer, I believe, and he was an atheist. He set out to prove legally that Christianity couldn't possibly be true, that this whole Jesus thing was indeed just some kind of made-up religion. And what he found out is he was using legalistic methods to try to ascertain whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. He kind of swerved into the fact that, oh, wait, Jesus was who he said he was, uh, and he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Mm -hmm. And he kind of talked a bit about that a little bit, and he started using a book that he mentioned called Science Speaks. And I found this uh, at one of the churches I was at. Somebody donated a box of books, and I saw this in there. And in this book, it goes into well, it's written by a guy named Peter Stoner. I don't even I don't think you can even find it anymore. He's a mathematician, he's an astronomer, and he put together a group of mathematicians to try to get into the probability of one person in history fulfilling different prophecies that were mentioned in the Bible. Because our claim is that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies because that's how God ordained it. Well, what are the odds then that Jesus wasn't, and he was just some random person who just happened to do that? And these are some of the things that he came up with that just, that just blew my mind. He cited that if one person were to fulfill just eight of what we estimate is about 300 prophecies about Jesus, the likelihood of one random person fulfilling only eight of those would be the same as if you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and having a random person pick out a specifically marked coin uh, and saying, I found it. That would be the same odds of one person just randomly fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Now, let's double that number. Let's get that number up to 16. And this is where I can't even imagine this because I, I, I know how big Texas is. It's, it's kind of a big state. Uh, I've never been to space, but I get the impression it's pretty big. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be a lot of it out there. And so this is these are the numbers now you have to use. Uh, if you take all those same silver dollars and you roll them into a giant ball, the odds of one person fulfilling just 16 of 300 prophecies would be if you were to take that big old giant ball of silver dollars, it would extend out toward the sun. So it's going out toward the sun and then do that 29 more times. Wow. It's just one person reaching into that pile of silver dollars. That's the odds of one person fulfilling 16 of 300 prophecies. And we believe, I don't know if all 300 of these prophecies have been fulfilled. I know that there's still some about him coming back and that kind of thing. Uh, there's still some things probably from Daniel that were um, uh, about the Messiah that we just, you know, uh, has it happened? I don't know. Maybe not because some parts of Daniel is like, I don't get it. Uh, there's certainly stuff in Revelation that we know that's, that's predicted to happen that we don't know that much about, but we're going to learn because Alan Jackson's about to tell us everything we need to know about Revelation right. in September, so stay tuned. Uh, and it's just mind-blowing that we can use uh, Scripture like that to say, say if, this if this was predicted and this happened, 
that's pretty good evidence that at least somebody knew what the plan was, designed a plan, put it out there and said, this is what I'm going to do. And we know that person is God. Uh, contrast that. I'm not going to mention any particular religions by name, but I might in a future episode. I can think of at least two instances where a person fabricated their own religion and basically wrote themselves into our scriptures. Uh, one person in particular said, uh, you know, after the scriptures had already been written, said, oh, by the way, this is me. This is me. And they kind of twisted the words around. And the thing is about the way, the way we have that re long record, again, we talked about that the other day, the long record of our scriptures that we could trace it back thousands of years and see that it remains unchanged. When someone changes the scriptures, you know when it happened. Uh, and when someone writes something in and says, oh, by the way, this was in there and this is me, I'm the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, you can easily say, no. Well, that's not it. Uh, another guy actually added to the book of Genesis and said, see, I'm actually mentioned by name in there. And it's like, mm-mm, because these are, they're claiming to have fulfilled prophecies, but only after the prophecy has been done, uh, whereas these predictions that we have in the Bible happened hundreds of years before, and we can see a history of how these things were fulfilled over time. I, I would say, Gary, with that, that um, you're coming at it from a— a view, a worldview that believes in God, right? So as you're, as you're coming at the Scripture from that worldview, you're reading it with the understanding that God has authored, has breathed, every word that's in here is true. So as we look at one passage in the Old Testament and we see it come true in the New Testament, that becomes a strong belief for us. There are people that approach the Bible without that worldview, so it's hard for them to see that because they don't know Christ, right? They don't, they don't have a relationship with God where they're in a place where they can read the Scripture and understand that it's true. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, you make an amazing point. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I've never known anything but Christianity. Right. I grew up, uh, e even before I started going to church in like third grade, I mean, I grew up with my mom singing Jesus songs to me, uh, even though she never really took me to church. Uh, that didn't happen until much later. Uh, the, the whole thing is... Now we live in a world where I'm stunned to to find out using, you know, polls and stuff, how much of our country have never even heard of Jesus. I, I would, quick quick aside here, um, when Paige and I were living in Illinois, um, one of the schools needed some people to come in and just help um, people who had moved to our town from uh, India. From, they were Nepali people. And so we went and helped some kids read. And one of the girls we were reading with around Christmas, she asked us about Christmas and she started asking questions, which we felt comfortable to answer. And then she said, but people talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And I never in my life dreamed that I would meet someone who had never heard the name Jesus or who Jesus was. If that young girl goes to read the scripture, she doesn't have any confidence. I don't know if confidence is the right word I'm thinking of, but, but as we read it, that we can prove the Bible by reading itself. Does that make sense? So so we come at it from a worldview that believes that and trusts that, but there are people who don't. And I would say that they, they can't put it all together because they don't know the God that's written about in the Bible, right? They don't know Jesus who's prophesied in the Bible to know that truth and to know that life, 
to be able to read it and see just how it really impacts their life. I mean, it's something that I've become having to be more mindful of, and and, and we see it in the book of Acts in two different places. I think it's Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter is preaching to a crowd of Jewish people who have a background, so when he's talking about these things of God, they already have that foundation. Right. You jump over, I think it's Acts 17, and all of a sudden Paul's finds himself in, uh, Paul finds himself in Athens, uh, and he's talking to a group of people who have no idea about this God. And I love this story because he see he says, I see that you are a very religious people. You have all these temples to these gods, and I see you even have one to an unknown oh, God. God. Well, guess what, guys? I know his name, know his and I'm name. about to tell you all about him. And they're like, oh, tell us more about this, because they were eager to learn about this God until he started talking about the resurrection. And then they're like, you're a nut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they weren't too thrilled about that, but it's like, what's your starting point now? I think that whole bar has been dialed way back, and it's something that I have to keep in mind. Alan, what do you have? Anything? No, other than to suggest that we have a great big world that we've been given to go into and proclaim the gospel, and you know, we have some ministry partners uh, that focus on what we call the 1040 window which is between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude um, on the eastern hemisphere of, of, the, of the earth, and a massive number of people there have never heard the name of Jesus. And, and, I, and I mean billions, plural, that have never actually heard the name. It's, we have a lot of work to do. I find it interesting because it seems to me like those people are more receptive to hearing about Jesus than those are who have heard about Jesus and like, hmm, no, nah, I've given it a try, or no, nah, I, I know about you, Jesus folk, or, you know, I've been burned by the church and that kind of thing. Uh, it seems like people who are hearing about him maybe for the first time, it's like they want to know more. They're interested. Uh, it's like I, it's my one regret. Well, it's not my one regret. I could probably make a list. I have regrets that I've never taken an overseas mission trip, and I think that would be—that uh, has to be life-altering, Right. Big time. You want to go? I do. All right, let's do it. And my wife will let me know. The, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I absolutely, absolutely do. So, uh, all right, anybody else got anything to say? John, you were talking earlier about something that I, I thought was good enough. Hey, let's close with that. Uh, so let's close with that. All right. Um, when we talk about things that are um, kind of scholarly, looks at the Bible and Scripture and different things, which are all very important for us to know, sometimes we can unfortunately get the idea, well, I can't understand it because I don't have an education or I don't have this or I don't have this degree or I don't have that degree. Um, Deuteronomy tells us these words, um, this command I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. This is Deuteronomy 30. It's not up in heaven where you have to ask, well, I go up to heaven and get it and proclaim it so that you can follow it. It's not across the sea where you have to ask who will go across the sea and get it for us and proclaim it to us that we can follow it. The message is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. See, today I've set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love God with all you have to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statute and ordinances so that you may live and multiply in the Lord in the land the Lord has given you and he may bless the land and you may enter it and possess it. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen, you're led astray. Then he says this at the end. Um, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Choose life 
so that you and your descendants may live. And I find it interesting in that passage that sometimes we think, I don't have the education to understand what he's saying, or I don't have the ability to understand what he's saying, but he's saying, I've placed it right before you. I have this right here that you can just look at and listen. You can read it. You can understand it. It's written in such a way where any of us can read it, and the Holy Spirit's going to be speaking to us and show us exactly what we need to know. Well, he wants us to know. Right. Yeah. Even this week, I was reading a passage in the New Testament, words that I know I've read before, but I read it in a different way, just from different things happening in my life right now. So when those things happen, the Spirit is speaking to me, and it just, I don't know, interprets it, but shows it in a, in a way that right now in my life, oh, that's what I needed to hear from God. And I always want people to know that that as we read the Bible, He's going to speak to us. As we come to it open, with an open heart, ready to hear from Him and read it, and let it be that map to guide us, and let it be that mirror to show us uh, how we need to be living, and I always think that's important. Well, I mean, and that's when the scriptures say the Word of God is living and active. Right. That's a part of that. I remember a couple of years, probably, probably about five, six years ago, it was like I realized, you know what, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I've never read the whole Bible. And so it's like I've tried to read the Bible in a year plans, but that's like, but man, it's going to take a whole year. And so I stumbled across this read the Bible in 90 day plans. It's like, all right, let's try that. That was a marathon because that's like 16 chapters a day. Yep. And the way it's broken up is like you have a big old large Old Testament section and then a, a New Testament reading. And as I'm doing that, I mean, it's like, yeah, I've read these stories before, but all of a sudden seeing that in that big of a context, all of a sudden you're reading large swaths of scripture. All of a sudden you see how this whole story ties in together. But it's like every time I did that, I would somehow read something from that New Testament passage that directly related to that Old Testament passage that I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to kind of what you were talking about. How, like every time I read it, there's something new there. I'm never not surprised uh, when it's like, oh, how have I missed that? It was there the whole time. And, and so the, I know the concern that a lot of people have is, I mean, let's face it, that's a big book. I mean, it's, there's a lot of stuff there, and this one has maps and everything. It's like question we often get, well, where do I start? Yep. And so that's a conversation we really want to have because I actually want to do uh, one of these on, all right, how do we study the Bible? Right. What are your Bible study habits? Because I think I know a lot of people are out there going like, well, I've been a Christian like you know, 30, 40 years. I don't know how to do this. I'm kind of embarrassed to even ask. I've been in Sunday school my whole life, and it's like, I don't know how, to, where do I start? I don't know what this means. How does it all tie together? Well, let's do that. Let, let's have that. Um, and I know you're doing a lot of discipleship stuff that kind of helps out with that, that, doing that kind of stuff anyway. And so I certainly want to use this uh, thing that we have going here, this podcast to, to show people, all right, how do we do that? Not just about, you know, the hard questions you ask, like, uh, how can I know that Jesus is the only way? How do I read this thing? Right. How do I understand that? And that's going to be a part of what we're going to be diving into as this thing progresses. Uh, do either of you have anything you want to close out with before we end this thing? Hard for me to beat what John just said, but I would I would just add to the audience that if you're not reading Scripture regularly or you've struggled to get into it, look at some other translations. 
I, I'm not wrapped around like you have to read this one and not this one, or this one's more accurate than this one. That, that's that's really the wrong conversation. Um, I had the privilege of teaching at the women's prison um, uh, in Lula, Georgia, for a couple of years while I was in seminary, and I had this exercise where I invited students to look at some different translations, and and I I, mean, I had one of these formative moments in my ministry where a woman approached me the next week and said, I. I just want to tell you that I have picked up the King James Bible a hundred times and given up because that's what I always heard in the church where my grandmother took me. And your assignment to read the Common English Bible um, was eye-opening for me because I'm, I don't have great reading skills. And suddenly I could read God's Word for the first time. And I had one of those like, Oh, uh, you know what I mean? Like one of those sort of moments for me where I care that you're in the Word, and if at some point you need to look at a different translation or a more sophisticated translation, so be it. But the most important thing is to be in the Word. I think it kind of gets back to the the Reformation where one of the battles was, all right, let's get the Bible back in the hands of the people who could actually read it. Yep. Uh, I mean, people weren't reading Latin anymore, and so it was like the church then was like holding that over them. All right, it's what we say it is. Uh, well, it was never intended to be just that. And it's almost like, and I'm pretty sure if I ever get some angry messages about our, this content today, it might be this one. Uh, it's almost like the same thing. You have people out there who are King James only people. And it's like, I, if that's your Bible, Good. that has saved hundreds of thousands of people. All right. But it's also not written in a language that we speak today. It's not written to a people group uh, that can readily pick that up and go, oh, this, I get this. I get this. Yep. And uh, so if, if that's your thing, that's amazing. I, I'm, I'm so glad that that's there. But there are a lot of translations out there that just bring it home. And, and there are some that I'm not even really comfortable with that I think sure. are too simplistic. Agreed. And so, which I, but that sounds like that would be a good topic for another podcast. But they're good for ESOL speakers who are English as a second language. Exactly. That is a golden place to use some of these simpler paraphrases. And I will say simpler, there have been times where simpler paraphrases have caused me to look at a passage that I'm like, oh, how have I missed that? that I mean, that. yeah, oh, it was there <laughs> the whole time. And in my mind, I've been misinterpreting something. And it's like, oh. No, this brings it, it makes it a little bit uh, clearer. And allow yep. the Holy Spirit, right, just to speak to, to you speak. you're reading those things. Amen. Right, exactly. Amen. Uh, well, I don't think there's anything better that we can say to close this thing out. I'd like to thank Alan Tolliver and John Hume for joining us today. Uh, this podcast is called Questions You Ask. We've been talking about why you can trust the Bible. Join us next week when we talk about, is Jesus the only way? I'm Gary McIntyre. See you next time. Mm-hmm.